We're going to look in Acts 18, the preceding chapter to where Colin will be preaching from this evening. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1114. Let's read God's Word together. Acts 18, begin to read at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Tatius Justice a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on preaching. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned and Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Censria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went, wanted to go to Ikea, Ikea, (laughs) 
You can tell I've been working on my house this week, can't you? Yeah, okay. Well, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace believe, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Amen. This is the word of God. We continue um, in our series, The Spreading Flame, and, and today I want to call the sermon A Challenging Church Plant. And by way of introduction, let's think about uh, Paul coming to Corinth in fear and trembling. After Paul had left Athens, he made his way to Corinth, uh, a city famous for a number of things. Uh, it was renowned for its fantastic bronze and pottery works. It also had celebrated sporting events, which historians tell us would be pretty much on a par with the modern Olympic arena. And it was notorious for its immorality. In fact, by the 4th century, uh, the word Corinth was being used as a verb uh, when someone had become immoral, uh, to Corinthianize a person or a society. And, and as we come and look at our Western world and our society today, I think that the media, uh, in books, television, film, internet, and even our education has done a great job at Corinthianizing our society. We've become very immoral. And so it's into that that Paul comes, as he says, in fear and trembling. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, Paul reminds this church that when he came to them, it was in fear and trembling. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. I know he's not just saying that. I want us to try to get into the mind and the heart and the feeling of this man who was greatly used of God. But when he comes to the city, he's not coming, um, he's, he's not blasé about it. He's not actually confident about it other than his confidence in his relationship with God. Uh, there is a human aspect that, that sometimes we fail to recognize, thinking that that the preacher or the evangelist or the teacher uh, just uh, exudes that confidence that, that, that we miss the actual human face of it and the heart trembles that goes on behind the preparation and, and also the fulfillment of the call of God upon people's lives. So why would this man, Paul, greatly used of God throughout his life, come in fear and trembling? Well, I think there are at least two reasons. I think, first of all, because of the challenges that lay ahead. You don't read very far into Paul's letters before you get that sense of his own strong moral convictions and values. Uh, he called for very strict levels of moral purity in the churches and a consistent discipled approach to dealing with immoral offenders. He worked hard at keeping his own natural desires under control while at the same time submitting to the freedom of the rule of the Holy Spirit to guide him in his daily walk as a follower of Jesus. And so here's this man who's um, got a great desire to, to, to be morally pure, to be ethically right. And he comes to the most immoral and extravagantly licentious city in the world at that time. The city of Corinth was situated on the narrow neck of land that joins 
the southern peninsula of, of Greece to the mainland. Uh, it had two harbors, uh, one located on its western, another on its eastern seafront. And these harbors were connected with a sort of railroad uh, of wooden logs. It was about three and a half miles. Uh, a little bit like the Edinburgh City Trams is going to be uh, in three years' time. Just... Uh, uh, these wooden logs were laid along the land, and what would happen would a ship would dock in either of the eastern or western ports to stop it going all the way right round the southern part of Greece and the treacherous tribes and the shores. They would drag the ship ashore and pull it the three and a half miles over the railroad of wooden logs and, and, and get it into the next harbour so it could continue on its way from there. Now, this shortcut between the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea was renowned for its prosperity prosperity and its promiscuity. So as well as being the home for genuine businessmen and women, it was also the hub of the sex tourist industry of the day. It really was a sin city. And in a place where money, sex and power were the only thing that seemed to interest people, no wonder this apostle was apprehensive and fearful of the consequences of preaching the message that he says burned in his heart. I think he's also come in fear and trembling because of the experiences that lay behind. As we've studied Acts in our series on the spreading flame, we have seen how Paul and his companions throughout this second missionary journey have encountered difficulties and severe trials of many kinds. Paul had originally eagerly responded to what is known as the Macedonian call when in a vision one night, someone that I think he appears to recognize at least he knows he's from Macedonia as he preaches uh, in Asia and has a desire himself to go on into Asia and to take the gospel of Jesus to places yet unreached. He gets this call from a Macedonian man who says, come over and help us. And in response to that, Paul uh, goes over to bring uh, the message. Now, you would think if God gives you a dream like that, that somehow that would guarantee the success and the fruitfulness of that mission. Do you know, the one thing that, that you and I need to learn um, as, as individual Christians, but also as leaders of others, is that we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And if you've not got that yet, you might be striving for success, and it's never going to come until you're actually faithful, particularly with small things. Faithful in your daily walk with God, faithful in your relationship with your spouse, faithful as your parenting of your children, faithful as your submission to your parents if you are children, faithful as a brother and sister in Jesus, committed to the local church, called to be faithful. And God may grant some of us, may grant some of us, something that looks like success. We're called to be faithful. Paul may have assumed that the call guaranteed success, but what he really encountered would not qualify success, at least not from a human point of view, anyway. He was thrown out of the three Macedonian cities he ministered in. And what he experienced in Athens wasn't any more successful. Uh, Richard Longenecker, in his commentary on Acts, says that Paul was, and I quote, dismissed with polite contempt rather than being violently driven out. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference if somebody says, please, can you go, or if they actually chuck you out. It may have been less physically painful, but let's feel the man's heart. It would nonetheless 
affected him deeply emotionally. Maybe spiritually as well. God, I thought you called me there. God, I thought you asked me to do that. And he knew the hurt of feeling rejected. We also know that what he, from what he writes to the Christians in, Thessalon- in Thessalonica, that he was worried about how they were bearing up under fierce persecution. Uh, he had been there, some people think, for only a few months. Um, I think he was maybe there for only something like three weeks. And he had planted a church, and because of persecution, he had to get out of the city. And he had left this, this just completely tiny little embryonic church. And he was worried about them. How are they doing? How are they coping? Are they, did I give them enough just to get them started on their, on their way? He's got all that in his mind as he comes to Corinth. And you know, folks, I think lesser men would have just given up before now and headed home. But Paul has that one unique quality that's essential for anyone who's going to be involved in ministry, particularly at a leadership level. He knows with certainty the divine call of God upon his life and ministry. He knows with certainty that God has called him to this. And you know, there are times in in leadership ministry where that's all you've got to hold on to. But you know, the truth is, it's all you need to hold on to. Because where God calls, he also makes provision for those who respond in faithfulness. In Romans 1, uh, 14 following, Paul says, I am bound both bound to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He often refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, declaring that he could not but preach this gospel of grace that he was indebted to God for. Now, he also recognized that the gospel... Uh, message of reconciliation was the result of God's mercy. And that's the reason why he didn't lose heart when the going got tough. I hadn't recognized this before, but just a couple of weeks ago, as I was reading through 2 Corinthians, uh, I came across chapter 4 and verse 1. Because I've always assumed uh, and thought that this gospel is given to us as the gospel of grace. It's God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve this, and God has given us this gospel. But Paul says that he has this message and this ministry by God's mercy. Not by God's grace, but by God's mercy. And, and God's mercy is God withholding from us something that we deserve. You see, all of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God, and we deserve to be eternally judged and punished. But God in Jesus Christ has demonstrated his mercy and his love towards us is that he withholds the punishment from us and he places it on Jesus and Paul says because I was the one who was convicted though I was the one who was guilty and God did not judge me I have this ministry to share with others it's because God withheld something from him that he's not ashamed he's not discouraged and Paul knows that his suffering is only temporary and that it's actually for the good of the church. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4, just a little bit further on, verse 7 following, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that it's all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body 
the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And he says that we who are alive are always being given over to death for Christ's sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul knows that that's what he's called to, to die daily for Jesus and his church. Paul always will know that it is too soon for him to quit. When should you quit ministry? Never, Paul would say. Because if God's called you to it, he's called you to it for life. You know, there's no retirement in ministry. Uh, You may stop getting paid by the church, but if you're called as a true leader, a true elder, a true deacon, you never give up on that stuff. That's who you are. It's your character. It's your nature. You don't just function in a job. You live the stuff, as Paul did. It's always too soon for him to quit. I I have to attribute to Warren Wearsby uh, the expository outlines uh, that I'm using today. Um, There's there's three of them that's going to follow. First of all, we discover in in, in 1 and 3, through verses 1 and 3, that Paul finds new friends when he comes to Corinth. First of all, can I say that Paul uh, worked with his hands. I, I approve of that. Um, sorry about the Ikea reference there. But um, Tuesday, a, a truck showed up at my house and deposited a newly constructed stairway. came all the way from Shropshire. Uh, I, entered, I ordered it over the internet. Uh, so a couple of friends of mine on uh, Thursday and Friday off, a couple of days off, a couple of friends came in, ripped the old, the old stairs out of our house on Thursday, and Jeanette was able to ascend from ground floor to the next floor up yesterday afternoon with the new stairs in place. A little round of applause for us, please. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm not available for work, I'm sorry. but uh, Paul worked with his hands. I approve of that. He'd been taught a trade, a manual skill. It was customary in his days by his father to teach him that. And even if men were destined for managerial or academic careers, they first had to learn how to use their hands before being entrusted with the ability to use their heads. Paul's particular skill is identified here as a tent maker. Um, The word is used in the common sense of just someone who makes tents. But it can also be used to describe someone who worked in a particular sector of the leatherware trade. And there seems to be strong indications that maybe that's what Paul was involved in. Now, even though Paul believed that some people have the right to receive financial support from those that they oversee and lead in ministry, Paul decided that it wouldn't be right for him to claim that right in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 12, he says, Others have this right of support from you. Shouldn't we have it all the more? But did we, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, there's some disagreement um, among Bible commentators as to whether Priscilla and Aquila were proper Christians when Paul first arrived in Corinth and made his home with them, joining them in their family business of tent making. Um, but whatever their exact spiritual status when he arrived, we know that Paul later revealed that they held a house meeting in their home in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 16 and 19, and they were later deeply involved in the church in Rome, Romans 16 and 3. Now, of course, later on in this chapter, we also find them explaining the gospel clearly to Apollos, who's a visiting preacher from the North African city of Alexandria. So initially, he sets up his home with his newfound friends and works, 
uh, at his trade to provide income. But more than that, to provide a bridgehead from which he will successfully plant a church in this morally hostile environment. Now, in recent days, there have been uh, many maneuvers used to establish so-called church plants. I had the privilege some years ago of visiting um, the western side of the United States of America. It was a sort of preaching tour with attendance at a conference as well. And uh, in the Los Angeles Basin area in Orange County, I came across a newly established church which uh, has grown up uh, in the ways that, that some churches in the U.S. and elsewhere have done in recent days. Um, incidentally, Orange County has more churches uh, than anywhere else in the world, and yet this new one needed to be birthed. Just a few months earlier, a pastor, self-appointed, uh, and a group of disenchanted believers from other churches had got together to discuss how to plant their own church. They hired a building, um, did a huge advertising campaign on billboards, local TV and radio, announcing the start day of the new church. And on the day that it opened its doors, they had several thousand people in attendance. Wow, what a success. Well, a new church was born, or at least so they reckoned. Now, I think that sort of technique would have been so alien to Paul, uh, it would have undoubtedly have caused him a great deal of concern and sadness. We see also that he followed his heart. He worked with his hands, but he followed his heart. Romans 15 and 20 says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul wasn't the kind of preacher or minister or leader who simply wanted to corral Christians into a place for his own purposes. And much of what we see in the modern church just does exactly that. We live in the era of etching ear Christians who will gather around themselves, teachers, to say what they want to hear. And, and if, if you're a member of Charlotte Chapel and you don't like us or you disagree with our senior pastor or the elders or, or Colin or myself... Uh, and you can't seem to win the battle, and the likelihood is that you'll just up stakes and you'll go to where the nearest happening church is. And that's unfaithfulness. It's not being faithful with the small things in order that God can bless you with big things. And so we see teachers around us, there are even some in Edinburgh, who will corral people simply on the basis of Come and we'll give you a good feeling. But this man follows his heart. It's quite another thing than from the illustration I gave you from America. To go into an unevangelized un area of the world or an unevangelized part of contemporary society and establish a new groundbreaking initiative that will see lost souls won for Jesus, and then become rooted and established in their faith, so that they can in turn go back into their world, as the Lord of the harvest would call them, among their friends and their peers, and in turn see that whole disciple-making commission of Jesus fulfilled as he intends it to be. Where lawyers will evangelize lawyers, where Bikers will evangelize bikers where those involved in education will evangelize those involved in education because that's what the church exists for. It's not here for our entertainment, our pleasure, or to gratify our needs. It's here to be the light of the, the, the world, to be the light of Jesus' gospel that changes lives. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth. And so Paul founds 
a new church, verses 4 through 17. As it had been his practice in other places, um, Paul firstly went to share the gospel message in the Jewish synagogue. And there he encounters the hostile Jewish refusal. There's a real tragedy going on here as I thought about this. Within this Jewish community, the first thing that struck me was I, I believe that they're not able to function as God intended. Judaism was never intended to be an exclusive religious nation. Right back when God called Abraham, his promise was to him and his offspring that they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. And because of God's dealing with him, that he would bless the nations, not just one nation. And throughout the prophetic history of Israel, God had intended again and again and again that his intention was that Israel would take the light of God's revealed plan and share it with her neighboring nations. This, after all, was the people who had the scriptures that were able to make them wise unto salvation. And yet Jesus accused their leaders, the Pharisees, of being those who would take their message overseas only to make their hearers doubly the sons of hell. It's pretty condemning language from our Lord. I wanted you to be a light to the Gentiles. But you take the message that can make you wise unto salvation and you take it overseas and you make people doubly as guilty of how they stand before me already. So here, as throughout the known world, where Jews had been dispersed, they had set up their synagogue and they'd even proselytized Gentiles, got them to come in and join them, but they were light years away from the kind of spiritual experience and religious practice prescribed by the God they claimed to worship. And it's no good for you and I to say, oh, but I'm a Christian. Unless you really are. This is a Christian church. It may have the appearances of being, but unless it's doing what Jesus wants it to do, it's not a Christian church. They're not able to function as God intended. And thus they were not able to respond as God commanded. When John the Baptist came as herald of Jesus Christ, he preached a message calling the Jewish people to repentance. When Jesus came as the Son of God to call people to follow him, he also preached the message of repentance. Last week we saw Paul in action in Athens where he, took his, where he, spoke, when he spoke to his listeners. He told them that all men were created for a relationship with their creator and that in the past God had overlooked their ignorance to worship him as the one true God, but that now he commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. And when the people in the synagogue failed to respond... Paul very dramatically uh, gave up on them. He gave up on them. And he turned his ministry towards the Gentiles. Now this will raise all sorts of questions about whether we ought ever to give up on friends or family in the way that we share the good news message with them. Or whether we should pray for them. A couple of weekends ago I was away with the YPM and this question came up during our Q&A time. Is there ever a time that I should stop praying for people? Is there ever a time I should stop sharing the gospel message? Um, because if God hasn't destined people to be saved, what's the point of me communicating the good news to them? Well, if there's any doubt at all in your mind as to how Paul feels about this, and just in case you think he's simply throwing in the towel as far as his own people is concerned, go away and read Romans chapter 
9 through 11. But listen again to the heart of this man in Romans 9 and, and 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. That's how he really feels about it. He, he's just not some kind of fickle guy that says, oh, the going's too tough, they're not listening to me. He would give up his salvation for his own people if they could listen. That's how much he feels about it. So don't you ever give up on your lost friends. Don't you ever stop praying for them. And don't you ever stop communicating the good news to them. But Paul knows that he needs to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he discerns that it's time to move on into a more fruitful phase of service. And you know that it isn't that he's wasted his time here. Time and experience, even the painful stuff, is never wasted in the economy of God when our hearts are open and submissive to him. Paul will write again to the Corinthian church later on, telling them that he doesn't lose heart in ministry. As I've already said, because he proclaims this gospel since it's given to him through God's mercy. But he goes on to say that even if that gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing. Now, we don't have time to debate it here or study it, but, you know, we have to acknowledge that the reason that these people don't respond with conviction of sin and the reception of the power of God in a life-changing regeneration is completely under the sovereign rule and reign of an almighty God whose purposes you and I will not always understand. There are times when we may need to discern who it is that we talk to and what it is that we share with them and at what level. Remember, it was Jesus himself who cautioned his disciples in Matthew 7 and 6, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. and Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you in pieces. So a hostile Jewish response, a humble Gentile response. Paul moved out of the house uh, of Priscilla and Aquila and moved in with a Gentile named Justus, who was the Jewish, a Jewish proselyte and whose house apparently was next door to the synagogue. Now, maybe the reason Paul moved out of Aquila and Priscilla's place was just to prevent them from becoming the target of hostility that had arisen over his refocusing his ministry endeavor on the Gentiles. Now, some people may be questioning this tactic of Paul's and judging it a bit extreme. Maybe he should have stayed and tried to bring about change from within the synagogue. Or maybe it would have been better for him to have moved on to a different location altogether rather than set up church basically next door to where it appears to have failed in the first place. Now, his strategy had amazing results and it established the bridgehead from which the whole region could be evangelized. Um, Some of my spiritual heroes in in recent church history, uh, a couple of brothers called James and Robert Haldane, Uh, They took the gospel message to Scotland uh, a couple of centuries ago. And uh, part of their tactic and technique was that they would roll up at the local church on a Sunday and they would listen to um, normally the heretical minister in the established church preach something um, that was nowhere close to the gospel message. 
they would tolerate it, only just. And then they would announce to the congregation at the close of the service that if they wanted a proper exposition of that scripture, that they would reconvene outside a half an hour after the service finished if they wanted to hang around for the truth to be taught to them. You know, the truth is that they had an amazing blessing in their ministry, establishing hundreds of churches, seeing tens of thousands of people converted. And even in my hometown back in Orkney, where the population at the time was about 5,000 people, they once, um, James Haldane, once preached to 6,000 people in the open air in the middle of that town. God blessed them. But even on their first sortie through the land, they hadn't fully embraced the whole counsel of God, particularly in regard to baptism and church government. So they they had gone uh, throughout the land and they'd established um, something that we would now call congregationalist churches that still had um, pedo-baptism within its church rites. They fully embraced the teaching of Scripture that baptism was for believers and by immersion. uh, And then they revisited the churches and something like 80% of the churches that he visited then adopted uh, the, princes, the, the, the principles of baptism uh, as we would practice it here in Charlotte Chapel. Verse 8 tells us that the chief ruler of the synagogue had believed and that he and his entire household believed. Many others too believed and were baptized. Just please note in passing the order of sequence of events. We've got a baptismal service here tonight and we will baptize somebody by immersion. This was the way that Jesus baptized people, or at least his disciples did. It was the way that Jesus commanded it to be done. It was the practice of the early church. Although here and with the Philippian jailer, uh, where the whole household is saved and was baptized, we cannot read in the scripture what's not there. There is no mention of unbelievers, neither adults or children. It's believers' baptism. And then we come to this interesting character, Sosthenes, who was elected as the new synagogue ruler presumably after Crispus, had become a true follower of Jesus. Now, if this Sosthenes is the same person that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1, then he too must have trusted the Lord and become born from above. And the final sub-point I want to make under this section is that Paul receives a helpful divine revelation. Remember, Paul has come to Corinth in fear and trembling, and things haven't gone exactly swimmingly. So God contacts Paul directly in a vision with a word of encouragement. The preaching of the word thing has an immense privilege and honor, as I've already said. And yet, it has an extremely demanding, and it can be downright dangerous at times. When the pastor or the preacher studies the word in preparation to bring it to the saved or the unsaved, The hope is that it will always be warmly received and immediately put into action. However, sometimes the cross that the preacher has to bear is that inevitably that the word will meet with objection and the preacher will face rejection. And any Christian leader who knows anything about his or her call knows that such responses simply come with the territory. So if you're a Christian who's leading others and you're having a hard time just now, stop complaining. Don't think about giving up. It goes with the territory. Brighter days may be ahead. They may not. God has not called you to be successful. He's called you to be faithful. 
Paul was still facing such opposition. And while it was great to have some trustworthy human friends around him, nothing compensates for the relationship with the one who sticks closer than a brother. And so the all-knowing God draws near and directs. And I'm paraphrasing. Hang in there, son. Hang in there, son. You and I need to hear these words sometimes. Along life's journey as a Christian. Just hang in there. God's got a hold of you. He's not going to let you go. Let him lead you through it. Not even trumped up charges against Paul or the appearance before a pagan ruler can hinder what God has divinely promised. It's always brilliant to see when God vindicates his people. And uh, although I don't encourage violence, the fact that Sosthenes at this stage in his life has sort of um, been encouraged by the crowd behind him to go up there and represent him to bring false charges against Paul, I kind of had to smile again when I raised scripture and the crowds turn on him and give him a bit of a pummeling. Well, he kind of deserved it, really. Uh, but we don't encourage violence, certainly not from the pulpit. The crowd who are right behind him, when they hear the verdict, they're right on top of him. And I just, I think there's a caution there that we ought to be careful about pitching uh, our reputation into defending lost causes or acting against God's servants. Maybe somebody needs just to hear that. Be careful. Even as David would say of a Paul, of a Saul, even though Saul wasn't a good king and David knew he was anointed to take over, he would not speak against the Lord's anointed. Um, you won't ever hear me criticize a brother or sister in ministry. We don't do that sort of thing in the church. We just don't do it. God's the one who puts people in place and removes them, not us. So then Paul finishes his second missionary journey. Uh, verses 18 through 22. First of all, Paul keeps his word. Now, vow-taking poses a major problem for some of us. Um, We're told in James 5 and 12 that we're to let our yeses be yes and our noes be no, and that we should not swear by heaven or by anything on earth or anything else. Now, it's possible that this vow was taken um, after God had delivered Paul and his associates during the uprising described earlier, And the vow may simply have been a thanksgiving to God, since such vows were purely voluntary. Warren Wearsby, again very helpfully, let me quote from him. He says, for the Jews, Paul became a Jew, not in compromise, but in courtesy. Certainly Paul knew that there were no merits in such vows, nor is he necessarily setting up an example for us believers today. The Apostle Paul clearly understood the meaning of God's grace and was not stepping back into legalism or ceremonial practice. But he keeps his word. He'd made a vow, a Nazarite vow, and true to his word, he shaves his hair off as in fulfillment of that vow. If you've made a promise that doesn't go against the tenor of God's word and principle and guidance, then keep it. Be true to your word. If you said you're going to do it, do it. If you say you're not going to do it, don't do it. Let's really make our yeses be yes and our noes be no. Paul keeps his word. And he also maintains his accountability. He heads back to where it had all begun. First to Jerusalem. The scripture says there that he went up to the church. That's referenced to going up to Jerusalem. From where he then goes back to Antioch, which is the sending church. 
And so he maintains that accountability in ministry. He goes back to those who have commissioned him and sent him and reports to them. You know, it's good to have other people around us in church that we can just run things past and tell them what we're up to. There's no place in the church for mavericks. There's no place in the church for loose cannons. People who do their own thing and can't be controlled. Um, if you're such a person, do you know you're a real nuisance? And I say that very lovingly and tenderly to you. You're an absolute nuisance in any church where you go. Get involved. Come under submission of the local authority and leadership. Let's work together and not against each other. It's the crying cry again and again and again in Scripture. Let's be united and maintain that bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit. So in conclusion, we see Paul take a furlough and recommissioning. After some well-earned and necessary home assignment, Paul continues with the work God has commissioned him to do. He returns to the churches that he's planted and he strengthens them. Do you know, again, this is just his heart and it's also his divine call. 2 Corinthians 13 and 10. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come to you I may not have to be harsh or to use my authority, the authority the Lord has given for building you up, not tearing you down. It's the mark of a true Christian leader. That when you spend time in his or her presence, either privately or publicly, that you leave their presence feeling encouraged and built up in your faith. That's what the authority of God's leaders have, to build people up in their Christian experience, not to tear them down. And then we have this incident with Apollos. I'm not going to even touch on that. Colin is going to speak uh, more widely into that subject tonight. In Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not overcome it. Corinth is testimony to the fulfillment of that statement. A successful church plant is not dependent on the gifting, the eloquence or the strategy of the church planter. Neither can it be thwarted by any religious or secularly lost people. Church planting The proclamation of the gospel is nothing less than a merciful act of our sovereign Lord. I know that Hugh has a big interest in revival, not just the Welsh revival, but we were just chatting briefly about the Lewis and Harris revival uh, with Duncan Campbell. I've also read into that and it stirs me. But you know, one of the things that I've noticed in reading the accounts of revival in, in recent church history is that revival has broken out almost always on a Monday after a fairly mediocre preaching on a Sunday. That kind of encourages me. (laughs) Because this is all about Jesus. It's all about His Holy Spirit being released to come and do His work. Let's pray.